Hello friends, Pastor Tanner again, and we are here to um, go through our third installment of Reading the Bible Well. Um, if you're seeing this uh, and haven't seen the other two, um, you can definitely follow along with this one, and you should be able to follow along well even if you haven't seen the first two installments, but um, probably wouldn't hurt to go back and watch the first two if you uh, find this helpful at all. But yeah, the goal of our, our little study here um, this week and for the next few weeks is just to try and uh, become better readers of the Bible. And while this may seem like a elementary task or something um, that many of us may have moved beyond, um, we find that, that biblical literacy is one of the biggest challenges to um, growing in faith today. Is the fact that we, uh, we claim the Bible as our holy book, and yet uh, we're as a group, um, not uh, experts, not great at uh, knowing how to read and um, understand what we're reading. And so I just thought we'd, we'd walk through these um, just few lessons on how to read the Bible well. This week we're looking a little bit at the origin and the history of the Bible, and we'll wrap up kind of bringing that into a uh, so what of today. So kind of starting a while back and then moving all the way up into what we have today for our Bibles. So the uh, Bible is obviously, um, for Christians, a special book, a um, holy book. That's literally what the Holy Bible means, holy book. And um, so you might be wondering what, what makes the Bible special. There, there was lots of other uh, religious writings at the time, religious traditions, uh, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, started out as oral traditions. They didn't obviously write everything down 3,000 years ago because writing stuff down wasn't a, a very common practice then. So there's oral traditions passed from one generation to the next. And so beyond the stories that we have and the scriptures that we have today, there was other religious writings and other traditions and other history that uh, didn't make it into the Bible. And so it's it's helpful to ask the question, why did certain things... Um, end up in our Bible, and why did certain things not end up into our Bible? So that's something we'll kind of look at here as well. Um, but what makes the Bible special? Um, you may have heard, if you've been around the church for any length of time, that the Bible is inspired. Um, and what that means, if you're not familiar, it literally means um, breathed by God. So inspired, um, inspiration, um, you may notice that in the word inspired or inspiration, you have the root, the core of the same word that we have, spirit. And and um, that may be confusing at first if you're, you know, why is he bringing this up? But in Hebrew, the word for breath is the same word for spirit, is the same word for wind. And so you get this windy, breathy spirit thing happening here. And so when it says God breathed, it's God-spirited. Um, it's a wind. It's a it's a breath that moves into the world and shapes things as it moves into the world. And we talk about the Holy Spirit shaping us or motivating us or moving us, bringing power and life to us. And so, in the same sense, God brought the brought life to these scriptures. They're inspired. Now, what that doesn't mean is that God dictated word for word, like. You know, the Bible didn't drop out of the heavens in a complete form, nor is it something like God was speaking and he had his um, 
you know, somebody taking notes word for word right next to it. These were written by people. Um, like I said, s several of, especially the Old Testament stuff, were oral traditions first that um, were written down after many, many, many years and many generations of passing the teachings on to the next generation. And so for some of these, the people that actually wrote them down uh, weren't the people that um, started out these stories. For example, the first five books of the Bible, we call the books of Moses. Um, commonly, popularly, we say, well, you know, Moses wrote them, but um, you might see the flaw in that assumption when we read about Moses' death. Obviously, he didn't, he didn't write um, his own death narrative. So you can see that there's something else going on here. But yeah, I just wanted to, to make sure that we start out with understanding when we, we hear that the Bible is inspired, um, that it comes from God. What that means is that the, the Spirit is engaging people and uh, and these scriptures are the output of that engagement. Um, uh, a professor and an author that I, I follow, um, read several of his books and follow on one of his podcasts and blogs, He um, Peter Enns is his name, he says, um, the Bible is God's story, but he lets his children teach it um, or tell it, lets his, teach and tell the, his children tell the story. And so, um, we, in, in these scriptures that are inspired by God, we still capture humanity. Um, it's not um, sterile. It's not something that, like I said, God beamed out of, the, out of the heavens. There's the fingerprints of the people who wrote it and the people that told it. And you can see their culture in it. And you can see their influences. And you can see their humanity in, in these scriptures. So um, there's parts of the Bible that are descriptive, that tell us the way the world was. Um, there's parts of the Bible that are prescriptive, that um, call us to a standard or call us to follow a particular set of teachings. Um, and, and both are considered inspired. Both are considered from God. Um, we're not trying to um, say that one area is from God and another area isn't from God. The whole, whole book, the whole compilation is inspired. Um, now, a separate debate or conversation is around the word inerrant. The Bible is without error. And that opens up a whole whole bunch of other questions that we're not looking to jump into today. But I wanted you to be aware that that is something you can hear. It's inspired and inerrant. And basically, that means that the Bible is without error. And um, there's a lot of uh, battles uh, fought in religious circles about the label inerrant. But we're not going to jump into that today. Um, I just wanted first to make sure you're aware that saying the Bible is inspired is God-breathed. There's a scripture in 2 Timothy um, chapter 3 that says all scripture is inspired or all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness um, so the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, when this letter was written, um, the author may not have known that this was going to become part of the Bible. Um, most likely probably didn't know. So when, when that author was referring to scripture, he was referring to the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew Bible that would have been um, complete and finished at that point in time. And so um, the Bible is more dynamic and sometimes it, it points to itself and sometimes it points to itself in a way that um, the original authors wouldn't even have understood or intended it to do. But again, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the inspired nature of it, is God can use it and speak 
and reveal God's own self to us through this, um, even in ways that the author didn't intend. Um, so uh, sometimes, like I said, you'll get parts in the scripture, um, prophets a lot of times will say, you know, this says the Lord or, the, or God says this, or these are the word of God. Um, but a lot of times you don't have that bold declaration. This is what God says. That's just a story. It's just an, a, an event. It's a narrative. It's laws. It's teachings. It's a poem, right? Psalms has, uh, you know, po uh, poems and laments and all that. It, it doesn't say, though, this is what God says, or this is the word of God. But, but we believe, um, that God uses these to reveal God's nature and speak to us today, even. Um, another word that you'll hear when we talk about the Bible is the word canon. Not like canon on a pirate ship that you, that you shoot at each other, but like canon as in um, the authority. That's what that word literally means. The authority of Scripture. Uh, it's a rule, a standard, um, that which other things are measured by. And uh, so we have this canon of scripture. And what that means is not everything that is a religious writing, not everything that has, um, you know, the name of one of the followers of Jesus or not everything that says Moses on it or not everything that claims to be a gospel is actually in the Bible. Um, certain things don't meet the requirements to be in the canon. Um, they may have... Um, vague or ambiguous or questionable origins. The information inside the text could be inaccurate enough that people are like, well, this isn't useful because obviously these people, whoever wrote this, didn't know what they were talking about. Um, or even in the New Testament, the letters of Paul or Peter and some of the other letters, they are in the canon because they tie back to somebody who knew Jesus, but also um, many churches found these teachings helpful, and they found these teachings true. And so, um, again, the Bible didn't come to be because God just beamed it down from heaven and said, here you go, this is the thing. Um, but the Bible is a book of the community of believers. It belongs um, amongst the community of believers. And so there's a lot more um, give and take between the Bible's origins and the community in which the Bible or originated in. Um, you know, sometimes you'll hear people that are, you know, trying to talk against the Bible or talk against Christianity mention that there was councils that literally voted on what was in the Bible and what was not in the Bible. And, and I've seen it tied to like conspiracy theories and all this stuff. And, uh, and it's true. There were councils. They got together, leaders of churches and um, leaders of religious communities got together and talked about what should be in the Bible and what should not be in the Bible. Not because they were trying to hide truth, you know, like, well, Jesus was secretly married and had kids and, you know, the whole Da Vinci Code thing or whatever. Um, there was no conspiracy behind it. It was it was literally the pastors of churches getting together say, this this is true. Um, this is the, the faith that we inherited. Um, the apostles of Jesus who were taught the things of Jesus taught these to other people. And these meet the requirements of the canon. These other things that, that tell a story different than what um, what Jesus told or tell a story of different what Paul passed on or had a different type of uh, baptism or a different type of uh, teaching, um, they don't fit within our faith the way that we've 
been handed the faith. And you'll, you'll see those words in Paul a lot, like, I pass along to you that which was passed along to me. Um, this is how truth was determined. Um, and again, that may make us feel a little bit nervous because we think that the Bible is um, word for word exactly what God wants it to be. And uh, But again, it's much more human. It's much more of a human book. Um, there's people involved. Uh, God inspired people, and God inspired those who um, uh, were in charge of, of saying, yes, this reveals God to us, um, or no, this paints a picture that is not God the way that it's revealed in Jesus. So there's a lot going on there. There's some books um, in the, the, the Bible that Catholics use that Protestants don't. Um, as the Nazarene Church, we are Protestant, if you didn't know that. Um, we, that's our stream of, of faith. Um, and so we don't, if you have a Bible, uh, most likely your Bible doesn't have these extra books in them called the Apocrypha, or um, it literally means hidden books. And these are books that appear between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So there's this period between um, like the prophets in exile and the return to Israel in the Old Testament and Jesus showing up in the Gospels. And so these, these books, um, involve, some involve history, some involve some stories, um, fantastic stories like, like what we see in, in Revelation, some of these with dragons and beasts and all, and all of that. Um, some of it are just are extra teachings, wisdom, but a lot of it's, it's history of what happened in between these um, time periods. Um, and again, um, Protestants have decided um, that, that these books aren't part of our Bible because they weren't part of the Hebrew Bible, and nor were they part of the, um, the Bible that the um, earliest churches used. And so um, they said, you know, we can read them, we can learn from them, there's good stories in there, but uh, it's not in our canon. Uh, we don't see them as being authoritative. Um, so I've mentioned a few times that the Old Testament probably started out with a good portion of it being oral traditions, stories and teachings passed from one generation to another. But at some point, they started writing these stories down. Now, obviously, this predates the printing press, it predates the ability to mass produce, you know, they didn't have a Xerox machine running off copies of this. And so um, they had scribes whose, whose primary job was just to copy one text into another text, copy one scroll to another scroll. And um, that was a really important job because once that scroll was written um, and it was distributed, it was an official copy, right? Like this became the Torah, and there was nothing to go back, like if it was part of a community in a synagogue, per se, um, it's not like when people came to synagogue to worship, everybody brought their own scroll, and, and oh, you you know, this copy's wrong, here's a typo. That scroll was the official copy for probably for that community, or that village, or that city. And so, um, this copying process was extremely critical. And um, historians have found um, evidence of typos, you know, mis, mis copies along the way. But they, they used a, um, a process that not only worried about copying word for word, 
but they had specific formats. The lines were dictated to you in terms of what that line should look like. And so um, there's kind of a visual check over so you could compare copies and then have a very visual comparison without even reading the words. This one might look different than this one. You might, oh, there's a, a mistake in there. Um, so there's these rules that governed it. Like they took it so seriously that, um, you know, scribes took a, a tremendous amount of effort to, to, to develop these processes and rules to make sure that errors were, were minimized. Um, and I'm not going to go into what all those rules are, but, um, they, they developed this process, um, to ensure that things were copied correctly. A good way that we have been able to understand the development of the Bible, um, is something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what that means is um, these were scrolls found in, um, starting in 1947. Um, they were found in caves near the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is in a, a dry um, kind of wilderness area. Um, it's below sea level. You know, that's why you have the Dead Sea. It's, it's the lowest point in Israel, but it's it's barren wilderness all around. It's a very dry, arid, desert-type space. And so these um, nomadic shepherds um, walk their flocks and, and lead them from one place to another to find the grass and whatever green growth they can find to keep their flocks uh, eating. And uh, during 1947, uh, this shepherd boy wandered into one of these caves near the Dead Sea and found um, some scrolls. And under inspection, it turns out that these are original um, versions of the Bible. Certain stories, they, like for example, they found um, a complete manuscript of the book of Isaiah that was at least a thousand years older than other copies that we had in possession at that time. And so the dry uh, desert preserved these copies and they found literally thousands of scrolls and cop, you know, fragments of scrolls, and by evaluating them, they can see where scripture has remained consistent over the, the thousands of years, and they can see how things have, have modified and changed, because they can look farther back in history than ever before. We have actually have copies of Bible, books of the Bible that predate Jesus now, and um, so a lot of scholarship has, has been going on with these Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, there was a, a deliberate effort to go and search other caves, and they found lots and lots and lots of, of these fragments and scrolls. And it's it's fun to kind of think about how did these scrolls get there. There's theories that when Rome was invading uh, Jerusalem, the people that worked in the temple smuggled these scrolls out and hid them in these caves so they don't get destroyed with the temple. There was other people that said these were part of a... Um, a group that broke off from the temple system in Jerusalem and, and moved into the southern area uh, near the Dead Sea, and this is where they worshipped or whatever. There's all kinds of theories of how they got there. It's a really interesting story. Um, so that has affected the way that scholars study and understand the Bible. It's also affected biblical translations. So when you're looking at all the different versions of the Bible, um, Anything that was translated after 1947 um, is going to maybe have some different wording or a different approach because 
they have more original documents that they can actually go back and say, well, this is what was written before Jesus was alive. And so, um, or they can correct errors and those types of things. Um, and again, when you start talking about errors in the Bible, people get nervous about the whole inerrant conversation and inspiration. Um, but again, if, if you were to write the Bible, um, you know, word for word, if you were to copy it, um, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to not make any mistakes, right? So, um, and the same as scribes back in the day who had um, even less proofreading technology and, and processes in place. So, um, yeah, don't get don't get caught up. If you want to talk to me about, you know, the possibility of errors or typos in the Bible, like that's a conversation we can have. But don't get hung up on that today. Just know that it was copied by humans many, 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 many times. And the Dead Sea Scrolls help us to understand how those different copies have evolved over time and where changes happened inadvertently or deliberately. Um, let's see. Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, so you may or may not know, you probably know this, the Bible was not originally written in English. Um, the Old Testament was primarily in Hebrew. And... Uh, the oldest part, the most ancient part, um, is a very ancient Hebrew, and so um, it's it functions differently than than languages, um, more modern languages do. And so, to study the Old Testament in its original Hebrew is a bit of a scholarly challenge, and um, and is, is can be can be difficult. It can be um, uh, quite an endeavor. And then the New Testament primarily was written in Greek but not like the classical Greek that they would have taught in, um, you know, the, the elite Greek schools, but like the common everyday spoken um, Greek. And if, you, and if you're having a hard time understanding what the difference is, um, think back to when you were in school and you took an English class and you're like, well, English shouldn't be this hard because I speak English, but there, there's all these rules I don't know about. There's all these ways of structuring things and, and all these things that, you know, I speak English, but I don't do that. That's the difference between the Greek that's in the Bible, for the most part, and the Greek that was taught in schools, um, or classical Greek, um, you know, like the philosophers and all of those. Um, what's interesting, too, is we can tell a lot by the authors of the different books because of what type of Greek they use. We can tell what their education level was, or we can even tell where they were educated because of the type of Greek that they used. So um, anyways, um, so you got Hebrew and Greek as the primary languages um, of the Bible. Now what happened at, at one point, um, obviously somebody decided we're going to put this Bible into English. Um, but before that decision was ever made, before anybody said, let's put the Bible in English, they put the Bible into Latin. Um, again, the Roman Catholic Church was the primary, um, was the large church, right? And um, being from Rome, um, they spoke Latin, or that was their language. And so the Bible was translated into what was called the Vulgate. Um, uh, and so there was this Latin version of the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament was all in Latin. Now, the problem was that most common people didn't speak Latin. And so you'd go to your church, you'd go to Mass, and the priest would read Latin. You'd be taught certain phrases, 
but most people couldn't read the Bible, um, if, even if they, most people didn't have their own copy of the Bible, but even if they did, they wouldn't be able to read it because it wasn't in their own, it wasn't in a language that they could understand. And so um, a man named John Wycliffe translated the entire Bible into English from Latin. So now you've got Hebrew and Greek translated into Latin, then translated into English. Um, so those are quite a few hoops to jump from. And when that was um, released, people could read and hear the Bible in their own language um, really for the first time in a long time. And they realized that the Bible didn't necessarily say exactly what their leaders had been telling them it said. Um, and so the the church obviously resisted Wycliffe's Bible and weren't happy with him for releasing it. And um, there was conflict there. And you can do uh, a Google search on John Wycliffe and find out some more interesting facts about him and the church. And uh, it was... Uh, it wasn't a pretty situation. So then there was a man named William Tyndall who studied Greek and Hebrew and so then went back, instead of translating into English from Latin, he said, let's get the Latin out of here and let's just go study and translate from Hebrew into English and Greek into English. And so he released what was called the Tyndale Bible. And again, um, the the church was not super thrilled to have this Bible out there, um, and uh, he started with the New Testament and then started working on the Old Testament, and he was actually killed before he could complete the Old Testament um, because there were some in the church that were powerful, and um, I mean, the, the church was a big thing. I mean, if you think about medieval periods, we're talking the 1500s uh, for Tyndale. Um, if Everyday people could read what the Bible says. If they could read what Jesus said, um, they may be less inclined to go along blindly with what the church was saying and doing. And so they had a real problem with Tyndale. And um, in kind of a perfect, perfect storm or a perfect thing coming together, you've got the printing press that shows up around the same time that Bibles are being translated into English. And directly as a result of somebody being able to print English Bibles in mass quantities, do you have Martin Luther with the Protestant Reformation? Um, there was enough movement behind um, people being able to say, like, hey, I, read the, I can read this Bible. This is not what the Bible says. This is not what God wants from his people. And there was enough of a mass revolt against the, the teaching of the, the church that they were able to to split away, but it was tied to the printing press and tied to translating the Bible in, into English uh, so people could hear and read the Bible in their own language. Um, after Tyndale, there was what's called the Geneva Bible. Um, there was uh, <clears throat> a, uh, a, a translation of the Bible written in Switzerland, in, in Geneva, and um, this Bible was written with using a lot of notes and explanations. So it was a translation, but then there was also like study notes that came with it. And the King of England thought that these study notes were, um, were too Calvinist, which again, um, 
theology and political powers and monarchies and rulers all kind of butted heads together. Like the Pope was a powerful person. Um, the Catholic Church was an entity in and of itself that that battled with um, kingdoms, rulers, and, and all that. So it, the fact that the notes were um, particularly Calvinist um, ruffled the king of England's feathers a particular way. And so that's where the King James Version came from, is he said, in England, you won't be able to read this Geneva Bible, but there's only one version that people in England are authorized to read, and that's the King James Version, um, which was written in 1611 and had some um, very special dictates put on it by the King of England himself. And so for 300 years or more, the King James Version became the the popular um, English version, primarily because during that same period, England was not um, a small island country, but they were a colonial power, trend, you know, trans, <laughs> transporting themselves around the globe along with their Bible. And so the King James Version became kind of the, the basic standard English version. Um, there was some some uh, interesting errors in some of the prints. So the King James had been printed multiple times. Um, so for example, um, there was one where the printer left out the word not, which isn't a big deal, except it was coming from Exodus 20, where God's telling his people what to do and what not to do. And so um, the Bible actually printed, uh, went to print saying that you should um, commit adultery. And um, <laughs> instead of saying you should not commit adultery, and so that one's called the uh, Adultery Bible, just because of that error. And um, so there's things like that. Even even in the in, once we had a printing press, there was errors and mistakes that, that show up. Um, and then kind of jumping from there, we get into modern translations, um, revised version um, in the 1800s, um, and then in the 20th century, the 1900s is really, or yeah, the 1900s is when scholarship, biblical scholarship, really kind of took off. Um, and so there's, you know, and then, like I said, 1947, discovery of Dead Sea Scrolls, people started evaluating the translations of the Bible based off of what these Dead Sea Scrolls showed. And so the first Bible that you get after the Dead Sea Scrolls have been studied at any length was the New International Version in the 1960s. And so that's the first one that you'd consider a modern Bible in light of the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery. Um... And so now today, if you went to a Christian bookstore or went online, you're going to see a lot of different versions, probably dozens of different options and versions of the Bible. Um, you know, and they spread across a spectrum of uh, all different types of options and different approaches to interpretation. And so there's kind of three main ones. We touched on this a little bit in last week's video. Um, there's one that's called a formal equivalence. And that is a word-for-word -word translation. So um, the goal, the interpreters here said, this word in Greek says this, I'm going to put this word in, in English right here. And they try to put it in, even in the same place in the sentence. And, and it's just word-for-word. -word. And sometimes that's, that's helpful. Other times that can be difficult because there's phrases um, you know, that, that maybe Greek speakers used that don't translate into English, or there's phrases that we use today that if you translate into another language, wouldn't make any sense. Um, but the interpreters committed, they said, we're going to do word for word, and you can work from there to figure out what the phrase is. 
Um, but you know, we have we have phrases in language. That's how language works, right? Like you take a, a, a metaphor or a simile or something that has symbolic meaning, and it may mean something in a specific context. But if you take it out of that context, that could be really confusing. Um, but the the interpreter said we're just going to do word for word. So you get Bibles like the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. Um, when you read it, the the sentences could be really awkward. Um, but that's a deliberate choice, like I said, by the interpreters that said, we're just going to follow the Greek or follow the Hebrew and put it on the page the way that it, that it is. Um, there's dynamic equivalence. This is the second type. And you get Bibles translations like the NIV, the New International Version, where um, it's more of a thought for thought type of thing instead of saying, well, here's the word for rock, so I'm going to put the word rock. And then here's the word for hill, I'm going to put the word hill. They they read the whole sentence or the whole idea and then say, what? how do we express that idea or that thought in English? And so it may not be word for word. It may not be exact, um, most literal translation, but it's, it's a thought for thought. It says what the scripture said. Um, and then there's a paraphrase, which is a lot more interpretation. It's more of a... Um, well, if I had to explain this in my own words, what would this look like? And so we get, um, you know, the Living Bible, uh, the New Living Translation. You get um, the message even, which are paraphrases. Um, and so there's more versions that fall anywhere in between there, between formal equivalence and paraphrase. There's a lot of Bibles in there. Um, you can find which one you prefer to read for various types of study. Um, when I'm doing sermon prep, I read one type of Bible. Um, actually, I probably read a couple different types, um, but I'm doing like devotional reading. Um, I may refer to a you know a different version um, depending on what I'm trying to do. Uh, sometimes I want to read a paraphrase because I, I don't want to have to pull out my my study notes to figure out what this auth what the book is saying, um, and I just want somebody to help lead me through um, a moment with God. But if I'm doing an academic paper or I'm doing um, something a sermon that I want to be more on the academic side of things, or there's rigorous study involved, or there's questions about what this passage means. I want to be able to dig into the more into the original language, um, and uh, and so I'll use a different version. Um, but for you, you have to figure out what works for what your needs are, um, and that's like I said, kind of a history that leads us into our modern day. So. Um, the Bible is uh, probably more dynamic than we may assume. It didn't start out just here in a completed form. Um, there's active scholarship going now. Um, I just recently got a, a, a version of the Bible, of the Old Testament, um, and it is written from a, a Jewish perspective. And so they committed to um, not making it Western European, so where things could be, be stay in Jewish culture, they left it in there, so the names appear in Jewish, the way they, they would have been written or spoken in, in, in Jewish cultures, instead of being Americanized or Westernized um, through European lens. And so um, it just has a different flavor to it when you read it. The examples, the, the symbols, the narratives are all very Jewish. Um, and uh, that's an interesting read. I don't use it often, but I like to have it. Um, but you can see the, the different impacts that culture, context, the author, 
political dynamics, um, communities themselves, um, the early church and the early church leaders had a lot to say about what the Bible came to be. And then we have this canon. So it says these are the books that are in the Bible. They meet the requirements. Um, they have proven to be true. They've been proven to be helpful for teaching and for um, revealing God to us. Um, so we say that they are authoritative and they speak to us. I mean, it's also good. So in our in our day and age, we've gotten to the point like you just go off and read your own Bible and whatever it says to you is what it means. Um, but the Bible from the beginning was always a book that was read in community and understood in community. And so um, reading as part of a fellowship prevented you from coming up with your own um, tangential ideas, from, you know, from straying too far from tradition, straying too far from the, the, tr the truth. And so I would encourage you, yeah, do individual devotional reading, um, but also um, look to the broader Christian community to help understand what the Bible is teaching and what God is saying. So that's week three. Um, next week, we will be back with another lesson. And um, like I said, if you haven't seen the first two, haven't um, gone through the first two lessons, those are available as well. And so I uh, hope this has been helpful, and we'll see you next time.